This podcast is recorded in a house with animals. I have fed the cats, so they have abandoned the office and gone off to do what cats do when there is gushy food in the bowls, which is basically shove their face in it and uh, just devour. The dogs are hopefully sleeping somewhere, and the chickens are definitely locked away and asleep outside where they belong. Yay! But that doesn't mean there won't be noises. Just saying. The other thing to mention at this juncture is that we swear. Oh, do we? That is probably the worst that will happen on this podcast, but because of the rules and how the different podcast distributors don't allow you to do anything but clean and explicit, consider this explicit. That's why it's marked that way. Uh, Mostly for language, not for anything else. Welcome to Productivity Alchemy, episode 69. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Obviously, All right, yeah, 69. Um, we have a, an interview with a production potter later this episode. Ooh. And that, it was a good one. And Frank was a lot of fun to talk to, and we will talk to him in a little bit. My mother always used to say that potters were the only fine artists that ever made money. Yeah, he's got a production schedule that is, is like nobody's business, and he's running the whole thing uh, pretty much by himself. It's pretty amazing. It really awesome. is. Uh, in the other news, uh, my job hint continues. Yes. Uh, it was sort of uh, slowed down a little bit today, uh, well, the last couple days, because as I've mentioned on other shows, our hosting provider was getting out of the physical hosting business. So I had to take like a couple days to figure out where we were going to get new hosting and then purchase the new hosting, and then before they would actually provision the server, because I dedicated server for dirt cheap, uh, but then we had to prove our identities, that we weren't like some random scammers, and then they weren't happy with mine, because it's coming out of Ursula's card, so we had to prove her identity. It is your Patreon money that is making this possible, and we are very grateful. So very grateful. And end result is we now have a new dedicated server I spent basically Monday and Tuesday migrating everything over to it so that today they can shut down the server I have over in the Colo and Raleigh and I will be picking it up when they have time because <laughs> the owner's going to take hold of it, put it in, in his car basically. And we're going to do a handoff when things settle a little bit. This is one of those things where no one is happy that you're unemployed, but if it was going to happen, it oh, yeah. really helps that it was a time when you weren't juggling this in a job. Yeah, I basically could spend Monday and Tuesday doing nothing but moving the stuff over, tuning, moving stuff over, tuning. And I had it mostly wrapped up by the time lunch rolled around on Tuesday, which was good. Yeah. But then we we did some other stuff Tuesday. What else did we do on Tuesday? Was that yesterday? That was yesterday. We went out to Dog Skull. Yes, yes. I've been working at Dog Skull Patch the last two yeah, days. And moved some stuff around and got stuff set up for deer season. Yes. Which is still a couple weeks away, mind you. It's uh, next week, technically. Technically. Okay. But I'm not going to go out this month. So. Is that Well, does that mean that bow season is on right now? I believe so. Oh, wow. Another okay. thing I don't do. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, that's fair. But- so, it's, uh, it's... I was out today... And it was really good. I set up a, I had an invasive species crew out to remove all the Chinese privet a while ago. Oh my God, the work they did. It's, it is astonishing the work they did. And it is also astonishing to look at all of the brush piles, like every few feet, it's just a brush pile as high as my head. 
and I'm realizing like how much of the woods was Chinese privet, yeah, which is an invasive species down here in the southeast, and it's just like the woods are have gone from. This intensely tight, overgrown kind of oh, yeah. mess where you're trying to hack your way through on various paths to this sort of open, airy woodland with sun coming through. A, a managed woodland versus... Uh, well, it's it's in the initial stages of being managed. Yes. And there's there's a trail through it now laid out in uh, chips from having chipped the privet. Which, <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the thing is that putting down trails and what I did today... Uh, I went around a chunk of the border, a very small chunk, until I ran out of birdhouses and uh, <laughs> put up birdhouses basically along the boundaries so that when the little pink flags eventually fall, fall off, off or yeah. whatever, I can track it by birdhouses. And uh, That noise in the background is Smokey probably about to have a hairball because this is what he does before he has no, a hairball. That, that, that's that's not a hairball noise. That's a That's a dismay. And the world is not aligning to my liking noise. It may turn into a hairball noise, but it's also a general, I am outraged at existence noise. No, Smokey generally does that just before he horks up something unpleasant. Well, it, it, horking does make him outraged at the universe. Yeah. He also does that when the other cats won't play with him. I don't think that's a problem right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the chimney at Dog Skull Patch the, on the ruined house mm-hmm. fell down in the hurricane. And which is lovely because it was an old field stone chimney. The house is any is condemned or should be condemned, would be condemned if anyone cared enough to come out and condemn it. And uh, so I suddenly have this massive pile of field stone. And the important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that the chimney came down by itself and did not require me to arrange to pull it down without hurting myself. Yeah, I mean, it would the slightest pressure would have done it, but we would have just had to throw a rope around it and like have the truck, uh, yeah, pretty much down and which, but the angles would have been complicated. And so I uh, I moved Fieldstone today once I was done with the birdhouses and laid out the base of the very first raised bed, mm-hmm. and I felt I mean, and 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 it, it's one rock high at the moment. It's not like anything terribly impressive but there is this intentionality to it and i felt very warm and fuzzy and like i had accomplished things and then i went home and put icy pot on all of my major muscle groups. all of them yes every last one i would like just a giant sheet of icy hot that i could just lay down on and we could cut out in the shape of my back um <laughs> i'm gonna need three tubes of icy hot and at least two sets of cotton sheets. Basically, I just want to be a mummy made of, like, mentholated body rub. Yeah, probably probably figure that out. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. That's what I did. I, I am proud of myself. I feel I am moving infinitesimally, but importantly, towards the goal of doing something with Dog Skull Patch. Yes. Which is a goal I think I mentioned back at the very beginning of the show. Yes, it was. And I've also got uh, someone to call tomorrow to look into removing all of the crap from inside the condemned house and possibly some of the garbage and crap around the yard, so Uh, we'll find out. Hopefully he can at least give us the name of a junk removal, a junk pickup and removal system or person, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, there's just a lot of junk, and we've picked up a bunch of it, but... Uh, there's a lot of junk. There is. 
There is. We, we scratched the surface and were afraid of what we found under it. Yes. And that surface was mostly pine straw, let's be honest. Yes, we, we, we took off the pine straw and discovered, you know, the ancient glass jar burial ground. And they weren't even that ancient. Yeah. Like 70s and 80s something. Uh, yeah, people used various parts of the property basically as a trash dump. Mm -hmm. And we would like the trash undumped. Undumped. It's, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. So, uh, I was also super duper productive this week. I finished off the illustrations I needed to do. I am getting the last rounds of copy edits on the novel coming out. Mm -hmm. And got a, pro a project that was not working. It was not working. No. And I basically said... I think this is not going to work. It, it was a book. It was the publisher. I've worked with the publisher before. We're all cool. It mm -hmm. was nobody's fault, really. It was just a, what I delivered was not what they were expecting to get. And we tried very hard to make it work. And we, she would have kept trying. And finally, I was just like, I do not think I can turn this book into what you want it would be easier to write a different book. And I do think we can make each other very miserable for another year trying to get this to work. Mm -hmm. And I am proud of myself at having recognized that point and basically thrown in the towel and mm -hmm. said, this is not working. Uh, let's, let's move on. And that's, I, I think that's something really important to talk about because I think a lot of times we do not stop and say this is not working we will just plow forward no matter how painful no matter how much extra time and just waste time and effort and frustration and be angry and all of that when it may have just been easier to say this is not working go somewhere else or try something else yes and part of my fail fast uh philosophy when i'm doing systems administration stuff yeah uh if something isn't working and it will take a whole bunch of effort to make it work, then we call that a fail and we go on to the next thing. And that is not everybody's cup of tea. I know several people I've worked with who are, who would basically just grit their teeth and say, no, I know this can work and just push on and waste extra time, weeks sometimes, uh, and miss delivery dates because they don't want to say this is not working or they feel that if they don't make it work, then it's a personal affront or a, a personal failing. I've had that happen to me. I have done that myself. So it is something that I'm very familiar with and I'm, I, I will get caught in it sometimes, but I'm trying to not to so much to be able to stop and say, this is not working. Maybe I should try something else. And there are points on paintings where mm -hmm. you can look at it and go, this isn't working done. Uh, honestly, ironically, getting back to our, our interview, one of the things that taught me about failing, and this is true, not just something I'm saying because it makes a great segue, was taking pottery classes. <laughs> because there is a point that happens very early on when you're wheel throwing where you cannot be precious and fiddly when you're throwing a pot on the wheel mm -hmm. because the clay will get wet and overworked. Right. You uh, there. There's a point where you look at it and you go, I've thrown the wall too thin. It is not possible to fix this without 
enormous amounts of work, and why would I bother? So at that point, when I was learning to wheel throw, and I took an entire you know semester basically, it was nothing but come in and throw on the damn wheel over and over. Uh, I took it because that was the first time I had been bad at something I wanted to do, and which it's good oh, yeah. in college to to. I, I came perhaps late to that because before then, there had been nothing that I had been bad at that I had really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. There were lots of things I was bad at, but I just didn't care. Uh, or I decided I didn't care, but God damn it, I wanted to be good at throwing pots, and I was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am still I, – I attained through sheer bloody-mindedness <laughs> a certain uh, – Competence? Yeah, I mean, I can I can throw a pot on a wheel, or I could. T- it, well, it's sort of like riding a bicycle. Honestly, you you still know how to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good. They're not, you know, no one's going to give me any awards. Uh, but I can throw a thing that I can cut off the wheel and put in a kiln, and it probably won't explode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I made a set of dishes. I think my mother's still using them. Uh-huh. And but you learned not to the the work stopped being precious very mm-hmm. quickly. Well, there was also wasn't there an exercise involving a dumpster? Uh exercise. It wasn't exactly an exercise. It was um the the smashing of the ugly pots. At the end of the the semester, uh we had created a bunch of stuff that and we'd taken it through all of the stages of firing and whatnot, and a lot of it was frankly shit. Because mm-hmm. I mean, we were first first year pottery students, uh, and there was a large dumpster outside the ceramic studio, and our professor said, "You can set these things on." And there was a sort of a concrete wall next to it, sort of a low brick concrete wall. It's like you can set them on here, and this is the free to good home. And if anyone wants them, they will take them home. Or you can just throw them in the dumpster and smash them. And there were some people who could not smash them. Mm-hmm. It was it was a a they they had worked on this and it was like no I, this is horrifying I, I have to put it out on the free to get home. And then there were those of us who were like all right and flung it into the dumpster and heard the crash of ceramic and it was like about half an orgasm worth <laughs> of euphoria. We were just like whoa all right give me another one. And because there was this sort of liberating moment when you could look at something you had made and said, yes, I put a lot of time and energy into this, and I have not made something beautiful or worth having, so I'm going to smash it and start again. And it was really very liberating, and it it did a lot for me as an artist to be able to say, uh, this is is not working, you're done, keep going. Mm Mm-hmm. Years, years later, I would uh, casually take a ceramics class with a friend of mine who was like, I want to take a ceramics class. Come with me so I'm not alone. I'm like, yeah, sure, fine. And uh, at a community center or something, and very nice woman teaching it who was very good at what she did, but was used to people being very attached to their work. <laughs> oh, and I sat God. down and threw something on the wheel and and she, and realized, and she came over and she said, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I made the wall too thin. And she's like, well, if you cut it off now, we can use some slip and we can, we can put something, we can, we can score, you know, put something on the outside and try to thicken it up. And I'm like, 
Or I could cut it off the wheel and make another one in 45 seconds. And she looked sort of startled. <laughs> and I'm like, it's just clay. <laughs> this this literally took me two minutes and it should have taken me a minute and a half because if it had I wouldn't have thrown the wall so thin <laughs> so and, you know and, and she honestly stopped asking me if everything was okay after that so, <laughs> uh, she knew what the answer was <laughs> it's fine I'll fix it or if it's or if it's not fixable don't bother fixing it just make another one it's clay it heals itself yeah. wedge it all and throw it in the scrap barrel anyway Anyway, yeah, and that's but that's a, a valuable life lesson too, in a lot of ways. In that, just because we make something, just because we maybe bought something that we that was precious to us once, or that we worked really hard on getting it, it's not permanent. And if we don't like it later, we can get rid of it. It's yeah. okay. As, as don't look around my office and give me that look that says, "I see you getting rid of all these things," but. Uh, My office is a clutter, and I do need to clean it out, because often what happens is we need to put something somewhere, and I'm like, okay, and I shove it on a shelf, and then three years go by, and maybe I'll look for it again, and maybe not, and it's more mostly I just need to get this out of my way, and so my, my office gets cluttered, because I don't purge the way Ursula does. I, I wasn't... I... You got a lot from me, like, glancing over your shoulder, okay? It wasn't just, it, it was you glanced over my shoulder, then you glanced to that corner over there, and you sort of glanced across the desktop across from you, and I could sort of hear the thought process going, here's a man who hasn't thrown anything <laughs> away in this office, telling people it's okay to throw things away, and, and yeah. I realized that you I don't need... don't get the money you spent back just by keeping it. No, you don't. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that's just, a lot of it is stuff that just came in and I haven't cleaned out. I, I was, yeah. I did. But I think we, a lot of us have that attitude of we spent money on it, therefore we need to keep it forever or find a good home for it. Because it's not, it's like, people feel like it's like the stock market. You don't lose money until you get rid of the stock for less than you paid. It's like, right. I haven't lost what I spent on this uh, dress that doesn't fit until I get rid of it. Yeah, the the interesting things to get rid of, I have that pile of review journals and planners over there. Mm -hmm. Some of them that are actually dated for 2017 and 2018, so they can they're useless at this point. In November of 2018, they're useless. They should go. There are some that are crap that I don't think I could possibly give away. I I might I don't even know if I could pay someone to take them away, so <laughs> Uh, have, you, have you told the internet they were crappy, though? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Pretty much everything in that pile... Has already been reviewed? Has already been reviewed. What? This pile here. Uh, yes, that pile right there. Which... <laughs> Some of those have been used and have writing in them. Some of those are unused and undated. I need to sort them and toss them. I can't just go pitch them out right now. No, like you've got the original notebook, that that one with the the raven on the cover. Yeah, that's all of my first year notes for productivity alchemy. That I'm I I don't necessarily need to keep that one, but it's just your raven covers coming across, uh, coming off, and Sergey is dug into it. Yeah, it's mostly a reminder of how far I've come. That one has a little bit of symbolic meaning, but like the the one with the silver discs on the very very bottom down there. 
that a perfect notebook? No. That's the, um, not the story clock. Here, let me see this one. This is the, yes, the perfect notebook, which was a slightly weird size, and the rings, while ring-bound, are a slightly weird shape and don't quite work with the regular paper. I think I talked about this one. It's undated, so if someone, uh, maybe I will give this one away. Because this one can be given away. What, what do we got there? This is the Evernote notebook. Oh, Evernote. the the Evernote uh, Moleskine, where you write in it and you take pictures of it in the Evernote app, and supposedly it does magic things with it. It didn't really do the magic things with it. Then throw it away! Hold on. What did I write in it? Because I was using it for... Uh, this is... All... Notes... From my old job that don't matter for... Uh, shit anymore. Throw it away! Liberate yourself from the tyranny of the I material! Will, as soon as I take out the stickers, because fuck yeah, stickers. I need to take out the garbage after the show's over, too. He has thrown it into the trash can. I Ladies have... and gentlemen, we have practiced briefly what we preach. <laughs> Alright. Uh, feeling good! Feeling, yep. feeling, we're moving forward! Yeah, and I, I still have the stickers that came with it, which were okay. I will add them to the Useful stickers in the back of the thing. I, I wouldn't try to use those stickers to actually, you know, take a photograph and have them autofile the way they said it would, because it didn't really work that way. And it might have just been that the, the photo on my, the, the camera on the phone I had at the time wasn't very good, but... You probably don't need the little uh, life and death of Moleskine And And the saga. little quality control sticker that comes with it, yeah. 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 Woo! We're purging here, people! There we go, yep. Now, the plot device's story clock notebook that I have in my, my hands right here, it is, if you're a script writer and use a very specific um, writing style, this is fantastic. If you're someone like me who's not writing stories necessarily and isn't writing, like, plots using the, the, the story structure, build your story structure as you're writing, your you're outlining your thing here, then, um, yeah... Not so useful. Not so useful, uh, but uh, again, undated. So the story these these two could actually go back, and I should give one of those away. Yeah, let's get the story clock away. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've got a okay. So I've got a story clock notebook by Plot Devices. Plotdevices.co. It is it is small. It is just a stapled notebook with paper covers, kind of thing. Not like a yep. big ring. Actually, there part. there should be. I think there are two more. In the pile over there. There are all one right. or two more. We will send you all the story clock notebooks we, we have. We can find, yes. Yes. So comment on this episode uh, at productivityalchemy.com saying, I want the story clock notebook and any other comments you might have. And when we do a letter show, no, not the letter show, because the letter show is only a week away. Let's call it um, Thanksgiving week on the 21st. On the 21st. When we well, it'll be the twenty second actually. But uh, when we record on the twenty first, we will draw a name and we will notify so that the the winner before it airs on the twenty second. Woo, woo. So yeah, uh, the story clock notebook. If you're a scriptwriter, if you like using like half hour or you know the the episodic structure of TV shows or something for. If you don't You're know, but your you want to give it a try for plotting... We got one. Or I two. got one. Or three. We don't know. Yeah. We'll dig them out. We'll dig them out. Woo! So that's that. Um, now, going back to before that... With the smashing? With the smashing. And the pottery? And the pottery. Uh, Frank Gossar is a 
production potter in Eugene, Oregon. Ah, Eugene. I used to buy drugs there. He throws... In my youth, people. You can't pin anything on me now. I want to say he, he throws hundreds, if not thousands, of the same pot, plate, cup, whatever, over the course of a year. He does shows, like actual pottery shows, and travels with it. Well, so, I don't know if they're actually the same pot, because, you know... Well, well all the same pot, style. The same style. The there same style, yes. right? Like, if somebody wants a set of four of a particular style, he goes out and he makes four sometimes. Uh, and he talks about this. He has eight in stock, but now he's down four, so he's got to throw four more anyway. Yep. Or maybe they want a custom color, and oh, dear God. Uh, but there's... Uh, a lot of interesting stuff we talk about, especially about how he keeps all of that organized between the shows and his inventory and things like that. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk to Frank right after this. Hi, folks. I am here with Frank Goser, who is a full-time professional potter, I think. Is that right? That is correct. That is I'm correct. a full-time production potter. We call it a production potter. Production potter. And sometimes sculptor, doing business since 1993 as Off-Center Ceramics. Wow. I make hand, uh, hand-throw functional stoneware pottery, hand-paint mm-hmm. everything using brushes I make myself out of squ- roadkill squirrel tail. Birds and animal patterns, mostly, and fired wow. uh, all in a 50-cubic-foot gas kiln. So we can skip the first question, which is introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do, because we've just covered that, right? So, <laughs> Well, I got a little bit more, because I have had a very checkered past. I have been an editorial cartoonist, rubber stamp designer, children's storyteller and musician, teacher, both in pottery and science fiction, graphic designer, and for 25 years hosted the Saturday Cafe, a weekly folk singer-songwriter music program on KLCC, which is our NPR affiliate out here in Eugene. Wow. Okay. So that is, that is, and now you're making brushes out of squirrel tails. Squirrel tail. Yes. Okay. Now, are you just, I'm sorry. Now, now I have to ask these extra questions because now I just want to know. So do you, you, and you said roadkill squirrel. So you're just like, Driving along, someone's hit a squirrel and you harvest? I live on a sort of semi-suburban, four-lane, 45-mile-an-hour street where the city planted red oak trees right up my side of the street. Oh. So every fall, I'm out there giving them the last rites and checking their donor card to see if they checked off for artistic purposes and eh. burying the rest of it down at the bottom of my garden. Well, it's, uh, that is ecologically sound and... Uh, I would say cruelty free, but a car impact was in there somewhere. But uh, at least we know it's not going to waste, uh, and you're not endangering the buzzards or other scavengers by leaving them in the road. Good point. Yes. So, uh, uh, okay. So we were on the. Um, uh, how do you keep yourself organized with all this going on? 
<sighs> lists. So <laughs> many lists. I actually started saving them on the computer. I've got a couple of checklists for road shows, one for indoor shows, one for outdoor shows. I have a special orders text file. I take a lot of special orders. People will want a particular pattern on a particular pot, or maybe they'll send me a picture they want painted on a dinner plate. And most of them come in by email, so I can just cut and paste them into a text file. I have Excel files. I, I do, because I was a graphic artist, I do publicity for three different pottery shows. Wow. Ceramic Showcase out of Portland, Clayfest in Eugene, and Clayfolk in Medford. Mm-hmm. And deadlines. I started keeping an Excel file a couple of years ago so that I can track the deadlines easier and have specs about ad sizes. And that's been really, really helpful. I also write paper lists for ongoing projects. I do a throwing list for every kiln firing. The 50 cubic foot kiln holds a lot of pots. And so I've got a list of things in the studio right now to throw. I will also make lists when it's time to glaze. I'll check my inventory and see what patterns I'm low on in what forms and, and so that mm-hmm. I don't have to sit down with a brush and a bowl and go, what goes on this? It's all written <laughs> down in advance. I have also started doing, I guess I'd call it a disposable bullet journal mm-hmm. for everyday stuff. Uh, my in-laws donated to a gazillion different charities, all of which gave them notepads. Oh, they always do. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's a handy thing. I'll just keep a notepad at the table, either right before bed or in in the morning during breakfast. I will make up a list of everything that needs to be done that day and kind of prioritize it and then cross it off as I go. If I finish a page, great. I can tear it off and start a new one tomorrow. If I've got leftover stuff, I will still start a new one tomorrow, but I'll keep the uh, partial pages until I've checked the last thing off, and then it goes away. Mm -hmm. It's, It's gone. There you go, yeah. And and I was just thinking about, you know, keeping the kiln list on paper and like, why wouldn't you do that on computer? And then I realized, because you can't take the computer and put it on the kiln or next to the kiln or, or you know, once or it's in the kiln, in the yeah. Studio, mm-hmm. Or even in the studio where my hands are all sticky from clay. Right, right. I mean, it just, it just there are places where the technology just literally will not work, right? I do. Do take the tablet down to the studio when I'm glazing because it's got all my reference photos on it. Right, but that, but I think I guess glazing's a little different than throwing and firing. Uh, a little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my hands tend to stay cleaner. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so through all of that, uh, I think we lists falls into this category. But um, are there any systems or habits that are valuable to you through all that? There are a couple. Mm-hmm. The first one is. Put stuff away. When we we bought our house 18 years ago, the first thing I did was went down to Goodwill and got myself a used four-drawer filing cabinet. And the top top drawer is all business folders. There are gallery folders for inventories. There there are sales lists. There are pretty much everything involved in the business goes in the top drawer. Second drawer has bills and insurance forms and a couple Mm. of estimated tax and tax folders. Uh, The third and fourth are more freeform. They're more a place to stuff stuff when it starts sliding off my desk because sadly, in spite of trying, I still utilize the nearest flat surface form of filing a lot. Yeah. Uh, I also, with my uh, business financial records, I built myself an Excel spreadsheet that has 
12 pages, one per month, and a blank column for each space on a Schedule C. Okay, so yeah. When I get expenses, I pre-sort them. When I get income, I pre-sort that if it's a 1099 or just a straight income. I even have a couple of columns to track stuff that's local and that isn't because we have a local self-employment transit tax that only charges on things within our transit district. So all of this information gets filtered into the proper places within a day or two of the of the mm-hmm. uh, receipt or the check coming in. And then I don't have to worry about sorting through a box of receipts at the end of the year when tax time rolls around. Wow. That's, yeah. yeah. I, and you, so I can tell that you've been doing this sort of thing for a while because uh, I, I will admit uh, both Ursula and I are box keepers. Here's the box where we shove the receipts and we'll sort them out later. I started with a paper ledger and it was just income expenses. Mm-hmm. And then I would go through with a highlighter at the end of the year and highlight the different categories and add them up. And then I realized that paper ledgers came in 13 column format. So I could break the stuff out as I went. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, my wife was working as a, uh, assistant at a local community college and she helped a blind student with an Excel class and came home and said, you should really try this. <laughs> it's, it's really wonderful. I've mm. even got a macro at the bottom of each month that adds up the columns and then I can paste them onto my year summary and add that up. And I don't have to math at all. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a secret too. And that was, I discovered that you can take with the right syntax, you can take cells from one, page in the Excel workbook and uh-huh. and have it auto-populate in a different page, in a different tab. I did not know that. What I just do is <laughs> command, e- command equal on the, at the uh, summary line mm-hmm. and then copy it and paste it. Yeah, no. Um, uh, if I could remember, I think it's if you do something like equals and then the name of the page colon or or there's some reference. Look it up. It's really cool because uh, at my last job, I was doing a big spreadsheet two jobs ago, two jobs ago now. I was doing a spreadsheet where I was uh, calculating out um, certain percentages from our ticketing system. And mm-hmm. so I would have one page that was all these big raw numbers and totals. And then rather than copying the totals over, anytime I would change a line, um, it would update the totals and then it would update the page with that I was doing all the graphic on on with the uh with the totals brilliant yeah so um and i'll i'll probably when i when i record this i will have looked it up to see what the syntax is because <laughs> frankly that was one of my one of my favorite features out of all of it was just that oh i no longer have to copy and paste right i i just enter this mac i i, I enter this formula and it fills it in for me and when i changed on page one it updates page three and that's awesome <laughs> Yes, that sounds great. I'm going to have to try it once you've let me know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, habits, anyway. and system, <laughs> habits and systems continued. Right. Biggest thing is kind of consistency and repetition. I find a system and I stick with it. Back when I was doing radio, my show broke on 20-minute intervals for underwriters mm-hmm. and stuff. And I always did the the weather on the first 20 break, the uh, folk calendar on the second 20 break, Uh, live interviews and I had a bunch of them because I was late enough that musicians would be awake, but early enough that they weren't doing sound checks (laughs) would either be the 20 minutes before or after the midpoint of the show. And then I would actually build my sets and I'd have first song, 
six sets, stacks of music, last song, and uh, have them all planned out before I even went on the air, which um, allowed me to kind of create a narrative flow. And it also meant that if somebody called in a request with an idea that was better than something I'd thought of, I could dump a set, rebuild it, and then 20 minutes later, I would be back on track again. I wouldn't have to worry about the whole rest of the show because it was waiting for me. Yeah, we um, when I was a um uh on-air personality for radio we had a a structure through the course of an hour very similar to that you know here's the mm-hmm. at the top of the hour station identification then news and then you play something from the top 10 that week and then you know we had it broken down by category and it was much more it was a almost a full hour but they were like sponsors who had bought in a certain time slot for a certain type of song and so you had to be prepared for that and and yeah you're right it does make it if that's what you're doing hour after hour after hour on the one thing listeners know what to expect uh but mm-hmm. also you can plan a lot better because you already know what's happening through the course of that hour and and you can yeah if you're doing musical shows like that you can plan your playlist in advance or if if you're going to do a narrative because it's a one-time show, if you're doing a daily thing, then it's like, yes, I can do a rotation very easily between the top 10, say, um, mm-hmm. over the course of the day. The, the pottery equivalent of that, we do a weekly Saturday market. Okay. From April through mm, – the, the market itself runs till mid-November, but I bail out after my first show – or my first weekend in October so that I've got studio time getting ready for Christmas. Oh yeah. That means that, you know, every week we've got the same setup and takedown. And so all the bowls go in the same order on the shelf. I've even got names on the bowl stands so that we know which one is missing. The mugs go in this order. The stew mugs go on that spot. The animal banks here, the whole thing is, is carefully laid out and consistent. And, all the pots come out of one set of boxes and go back into that set of boxes at the end of the show. We have a set of load-in boxes, and then there's restock boxes in the back, but we don't have to dig through them while we're loading in or taking down. We only right. open them up if we sold something and get something else out. That makes it a lot faster to, to set up a show and to take down a show. We always get really impressed the neighbors when we're at out-of-town shows because it looks like we've got so much stuff and we can get it out and, and back in again in an amazingly short amount of time because we practice all the time. Yeah, if, if you're practicing every week, then yeah, uh, we are down to, I think, one big show like that a year for, for art and uh, Ursula's Pendants and things like that. And so... Mm-hmm we're not as good at it as many of the other people at the same event who are going to conventions or shows every weekend the same way. So we might take a little longer, but then, you know, we're, we're usually in early enough that even if we take a little longer, we're still done the day before and not, you know, five minutes before opening and Oh God, where's the thing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh yes. The one thing that I'm still working on for organization is inventory control because I have so many items and so many patterns on the items. I have a checklist and it's on the computer. Of course, we print it out and mark things off. I've been trying to, uh, keep track of what's in the van and then marking things off of it when it sells and, 
marking things off of the uh, shed inventory when I move them into the van and it's mostly working, mm -hmm. but because I have like three lists in a row with a lot of the same patterns, sometimes my brain farts and I put some check something off of the bowls list when it should be coming off of the mugs list. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that, again, that may be where, uh, well, that, that I think it depends then on the show if you have good cellular internet access because a big win for a lot of the people who are doing similar, like here are the regular things we always take with us, kind of art stocks, here's our print list, here's that, um, is using something like their tablet with Excel on it. Or um, I think Square has it built in inventory management now. But if you're not used to using that that's a big shift and i you know that um and that it may or may not be a help well the problem is i've got like 30 different kinds of items and as many as 24 patterns on Ooh. it on each of them so it's a lot of it's to, setup time <laughs> yeah setup time and finding the appropriate place to check it off and mm -hmm. i think I think I will stick with paper for now. Yeah, no, uh, friend, uh, and it is there is a big job in in doing inventory control like that. Uh, some friends of mine own a game store, and they were shifting from one uh, point of sale system to another. And as part of that, they basically had to re-inventory everything because there was no easy import, or maybe there was an import, but it wasn't. It didn't catch everything, and so they had to go through and double check all the lines and even. Something that should have taken, you know, should have been a, a very easy import was still several days and nights of work. <laughs> and yeah, no, inventory systems are hard. Um, yeah. And uh, anyone who tells you any different is lying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So got all that. Um, anything else in the, the systems or habits that are valuable? Well, I used to be much better at using a pocket calendar and I kind of stopped carrying it around and trying to get into Google Calendar and have had some problems with that, especially when Denise was still working at the college because it kept flagging me every time she had a class <laughs> she was working at. So still need to learn a better use of that. Yeah, no, I've... Uh, believe me, I've I've had the in in my case the I've got two different I have typically have two different calendars the work calendar which may or may not be in a system that is compatible with Google and my home Google calendar and so you know if I'm not careful or whatever I'm getting meeting notices for things I'm obviously not going to attend because I'm out of town or uh or I'm getting notices for you know the the school calendar, the school that my kid goes to has a Google calendar and I'll be getting notices for like picture day at work. And it's like, no, I, I don't need to know that. Right. <laughs> because it's because, yeah, no, I, that's the other thing in technology. For some reason, calendars are hard. Calendars are not easy, especially when you start getting into um, beyond just me and sharing and trying to manage it with multiple people or multiple uh, types of accounts. Right. Mm -hmm. You tend to get buried under false alarms after a while and then just stop paying attention. Yeah, exactly. And and that's and that's the exact opposite of what you want to happen. You 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 want to know what's going on, but you don't want to be so overwhelmed that you can't tell what's important and what's not. True. Yeah. So given all of that, how do you decide what to do first on a given day? Well, the list helps. Mm-hmm. 
when I was a graphic artist back working at the print shop, I discovered that mornings are my best time to be creative. If I was doing design work or, you know, illustration, that was a morning job. Afternoon was straight cut and paste stuff. So the equivalent here is I will do my throwing in the morning as much as possible, Mm -hmm. trimming and handles and finishing stuff. I've got currently got a couple dozen dessert plates in the studio that are off of the bats, but they still need to be flipped over and smoothed and stamped. Mm-hmm. That'll be an afternoon job. If I'm making ads for the clay shows, and I have to get back to that again soon, that will be a morning job because that requires creative mind. Um, converting them to PDFs and emailing them off to the appropriate newspapers, that's an afternoon thing. Um, loading kilns can be an afternoon thing, although with the big glaze kiln, Denise and I both working together take all day on that. hmm When I am glazing, I initially thought, oh, you need to warm up before you do the big challenging stuff. So do the easy things first, the soup bowls, the coffee cups that are just 24 patterns that you know in your sleep. And then discovered (laughs) that I was exhausted when I had to do the uh, special order snowy owl about to catch a mouse giant bowl at the end of the week. Right. So I I knew do the hard stuff first. Mm -hmm. And. And so I'll start doing, you know, 20 or 30 pieces a day. And by the end of the week, I'll be doing 60 or 70 because it's the easy things. Right. And I think there, there's an important thing. You have taken the time or I don't know if it was a deliberate act or something to figure out what type of tasks are best done at what time of day. And I think that's that's something I've heard a lot of people talk about is – you know, these are my, and I'm going to, I'm using air quotes, you know, peak times. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people uh, talking in technology say, you know, understand when your peak times are and schedule. Like if you're going to be, if you're a programmer, you're a designer, you know, block that time off for doing those tasks and schedule meetings and whatever around it. Not that we always can, mm-hmm. but. Um, and then. You have to avoid wasting that time, too. I never read my email in the morning because Mm -hmm. I know I'll fall down the Internet hole and I will (laughs) have wasted the the whole morning by the time I'm done. Right, right. And and I'm uh, the kind of person who hits their stride around like midday into mid-afternoon. So like 10 to 2 is really when I have my quote-unquote peak energy. And so... That's fantastic because that's when I can often do those tasks. And it's also bad because at job two jobs ago, the majority of the company was on the West Coast. And they always wanted to have meetings starting at 9 a.m. Pacific, uh-huh. 9 my time, which means they're right in the middle of that. And all of a sudden, boom, all that energy just goes out the window. Um, but uh, a lot of East Coast companies, again, they want to have their... If you're in engineering or development, they want to do that first thing in the morning at 10, which isn't so bad. Usually it's done and then focus on the rest of my day and, and push through the, the you know, do the energy stuff. Um, I worry about the companies that expect, you know, an 8 a.m. meeting followed by get right in there and, and push for the next thing because that is not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing to be self-employed sometimes. You can ske- build your schedule a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, around around what works best for you versus what works best for other people, right? Right. Right. Um, so what about the best advice or feedback you've been given? 
I've got two here. Okay. One of them was from another potter. When I first was out of graduate school, I was a resident potter at the Uvo Craft Center. And the uh, senior resident there said, you, you, when you start selling for yourself, Saturday markets, all cash sales, and you report your sales at the end and give them a percentage. And he mm-hmm. said, you're going to be tempted to lie. Uh-huh. Don't do it. Report it honestly, accurately, because otherwise, one of these years, you're going to ha- be doing something that will require that your income be verified, like getting a bank loan for a van, mm-hmm. and you have it there. And so I followed that advice, and I did it. And when it came time to get our first van bank loan, the uh, loan officer looked at our records and said, well, I'm kind of amazed. I've never seen anybody with this good of a credit rating with so little income, but <laughs> here's the, it was like $2,500. Go get your van. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. the other one was I, before I came out to Oregon for grad school, I lived in Wisconsin and I, that last summer I went to a pottery workshop in Nevada. There was one other student there and we worked all week. It was a two-week workshop. We worked all week, fired the kiln, went trout fishing, hung out. And then she flew back to Seattle, and I flew back to Wisconsin, both of us having checked our boxes of pottery through airline baggage handling. Mm-hmm. Since she got home first, she she opened her boxes before I did and called me and said, I wanted to catch you before you saw what they did. Huh. Just remember, they're just things. You'll make more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ursula talks about a, a pottery instructor she had who, at the end of the semester, this is when she was in college, they mm-hmm. they went out and they literally threw, you know, their mistakes, their, you know, the good and the bad or whatever, basically um, into a dumpster with the concrete and the breaking and all of that. And he's like, look, this is all stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, mistakes, the mistakes aren't permanent and you can always just go back and do it again. I had a professor who said you weren't a real potter till you'd intentionally broken your first hundred pots. <laughs> I actually uh, reblogged. She had a blog entry on that back in the squash blossoms day and I got permission from her and, oh, yeah. and reblogged it on my blog. So it's still out there in the Internet. Yeah, no, it's 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 one of those life lessons that you really can only learn from potters. <laughs> right? I can't I can't go out and throw my computer into it. No, actually what what it would do is okay, now that you're done, I want you to take a magnet and erase all the floppy disks that you just spent the last semester building this code on cuz guess what? That's about as permanent as it gets. Right? But you don't erase all of them. You save the best few and then you you erase the rest. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. It, it's not wholesale destruction, it's retail destruction. <laughs> this one this one i want to make again yes yeah or maybe i don't want to make this one again because if i don't make this one again i can make more money with it or maybe um this one is getting there i need to keep it around to remind me what i want to do differently on the next one okay yeah yeah and then two generations later you say well this one's no good anymore out it goes or not exactly yeah there was a um science fiction story that took place in a culture of artisans and they had something called a croseth which is the best um example of your work so far and the main character was an alien silversmith who had adopted a human and the uh 
idea of the Crosith was that it changed as you got better and better. You know, what was your Crosith when you were just out of school was replaced by a later one and a later one. And ultimately, at the end of his life, the uh, silversmith decided that his human apprentice was his Croseth. It was a really lovely, and I can't think of the author's name for the life of me. It's on my shelf across the room. I'm going to bet that in the weeks between when we're recording this and when this actually airs, one of us will find out. Well, it's the same author. I think it's, oh, it's the same author who did the... uh, I have the octopus, Emil and the Dutchman. It's the Emil and the Dutchman use universe. So it's uh, Rosenberg, Joel Rosenberg. Joel Rosenberg, who I do not know, but I am now going to be researching. <laughs> <laughs> uh, once I'm done with, uh, I'm currently reading season one of Book Burners, which uh-huh. uh, a shared universe and it's collaborative and and our friend. Yeah, I, I've read I've read season one. Oh my god, it's I'm not no spoilers. It's brilliant. Um, All right. Yeah. And uh, I, well, and then I'm going to go tell Murr uh, next time I see Murr Lafferty, I'm going to be like, this was amazing. It's really good. Um, which, you know, as I buy season two and season three after I get through next week's new books. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading two different Melissa Olson vampire series. I'm on book two of both of them. I'm kind of tracking back and forth between. And then I've got Kill the Farm Boy on my Kindle. Oh, Kill the Farm Boy is wonderful. Um, uh, both Kevin and Delilah did an amazing job with with Kill the Farm Boy, uh, and I loved it. And I can't wait for the the next book in the series. Well, I've got it because of you guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'll 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 tell that to to Kevin and uh, Delilah next time I have a chance to talk to them. That uh, you know, hey, at least one listener bought this book because of us. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right, um, all right. Do you want the Potentially happy question first or the potentially sad question first? Well, the happy question is harder, so let's do the sad question right. first because I have so much more experience with it. Yeah. Um, so how do you deal with failure when you miss a goal? Uh, you know, stop, swear, cry, get depressed, feel worthless for about a day. Yeah. I have found that if I can sleep on it, I can deal with it a lot better the next day. Mm-hmm. Um got a couple of recent examples i did a sculpture this last spring for ceramic showcase it's actually based on uh, harriet the invincible (laughs) and mumphrey was done in two pieces there was a a cobblestone street with legs and the belly Mm -hmm. and sort of a section that the rest of the body and saddle would rest on and then harriet would was made separately and was glued into the saddle afterwards and in the bisque firing I blew Mumphrey's tail off. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was sort of short term, nearly the end of that to making stuff for that particular firing cycle. And so I had to f- decide whether I was going to have a sculpture at all. Yeah. I slept on it. And the next morning I realized because the uh, belly section was not flat, I'd made it sort of conical mm-hmm. so that the top would sort of slide down and, and seat itself. I could figure reverse figure the shrinkage, add the extra inch around the bottom edge of the cone in just cardboard, and build a replacement right on the base. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so I did, I, I rebuilt Mumphrey in two days flat. Nice. And had him 
thoroughly dried, you know, we had had him, a fan on him so that he dried thoroughly. And mm-hmm. because I hadn't added extra tail pieces and extra thickness this time, I built it correct all the way out the, the surface, the less clay involved. Mm-hmm. Easier drying. Right. I use slab clay, so I build hollow from the start. Also, okay, the the face was way better when I did it the second <laughs> time. The proportions were wrong the first time, and so I was able to fix that, and and the end result was really really nice. So sometimes that that mistake or that mishap is not necessarily a bad thing. Exactly. If you if mm-hmm. you have the time and the wherewithal and the the brain power to figure out how to redo it better, you do it better. The other kind of, air, I, I had a special order. I still have a special order because it's still hanging fire for, <laughs> I make a wide low pasta bowl and I had somebody okay. who wants one with a lid and making a huge wide lid is tricky. Oh, and yeah. I had a nice one going into the firing two fires ago, except as I was pushing the car, the kiln in a hanging brick in the arch caught the knob and broke it off. Oh, yeah, so yeah. the first thing I did was phone him and say, I'm sorry, it's not going to be in this firing. And I made another one for this last time, and it shifted, and the lid stuck on with glaze. So I'm on versions three and four for the next firing. So I keep <laughs> doing it. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I emailed him this time and said, "It's I'm having bad luck, but I'm willing to keep trying if you are. And yeah. You just keep doing it. Yeah. So how about the flip side, which is now, which a lot of people say is the harder question. Um, Do you celebrate your success? And if so, how do you do it? This was a lot easier back when we were broke, oddly enough, (laughs) because I would be putting aside stuff and then we'd have a really good show and I'd come home with money in my pocket and we'd go to the bookstore and load up on used paperbacks or we'd go down to the music store and I'd get a bunch of CDs both to listen to in the studio and to play on the radio. Mm -hmm. But we have actually gotten successful enough that I don't have to wait for those things anymore. (laughs) You know, I, I, I I can buy books the week that they're released and, and, you know, I'm not buying that much music now that uh, I'm not playing on the radio. In fact, I'm kind of going through my collection, thinning it down and giving away the things that I only had for radio. But, uh, yeah, we can afford to do this. And so that's kind of less celebratory. Mostly what I do if I have a really good firing and something turned out wonderful is I walk around the studio cuddling it in my arms and making everybody <laughs> admire it. Uh, yeah, and, and there there's something to say for, for that sort of, um, if you'll pardon the phrasing, peer validation, right? Um, uh, one of the things I think that excites – I, I like Ursula more than finding out that she's like, so she's, she's been nominated for many awards and oftentimes the nomination is much more valuable than if she wins or not. Um, because in things like the nebulas where it's, you're nominated by your peers, that's validation from your peers versus the, you know, necessary. I mean, the Hugo's is obviously the fans love, love, the people mm-hmm. who are nominated and and we love the fans for that but there's a, a different dynamic when it's uh, a peer-based award like the nebulas or i'm trying to think what else uh or you know when the librarians do uh mm-hmm. make make one of her books a pick um right you know that's these are the people who who uh, i guess that it's a different kind of 
different kind of validation than the person who comes up and say, I love this piece and let me give you the, you know, $300 for it versus, you know, you know what I mean? It's an opinion you value. Right. Uh, Not that we don't value fan or buyer's opinions. I want to make that clear. (laughs) Well, it's like the difference between a professional opinion and a, Yeah, oh, I think I have a story that will explain this better okay. than my, my phrasing does. Than either of us are doing, yeah. I just sold a sculpture. Okay. This is a wonderful thing. It's nice to have the money. It's nice to know that it's out in the world. The person who bought it is locally famous as one of our best local artists. Okay. His name is Dan Chen. He's classically trained in Chinese art. Oh. When he first came over here, he was doing uh, cast ceramics from originals that were so good that the standards committee at Saturday market investigated him because they thought he was buying them. He does brilliant pastel art drawings. I've got a, like a 40 inch peacock rooster drawing over my fireplace right now that we bought as a, as a present to ourselves when we bought the house. He's gotten into bronze over the last few years and just did an enormous commission for Chumash Casino in Northern California. Okay, yeah. And he came down to my booth because we know each other from our craft center days. We Hmm. had friends in town. So he stopped in at Saturday Market, asked how things were going, and asked if I had any, what I'd been doing lately. And so I showed him a picture on my tablet of Harriet and Mumphrey. Right. And he said, how big is it? And I said, yeah. And he said, "Uh, how much? And I said, yeah. And he said, I have to, I I need it. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's, it's like the nebulas for Ursula. Suddenly I'm getting validation from somebody who, well, it's kind of like I sold one of my sketches to Picasso. Or, um, or in my case, when, you know, someone who, you know, uh, no, I'm trying to think of the right thing in code terms, I, and I cannot come. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the woman who did, who created Habitica, oh, solicited you for an idea for a bit of code. Uh, actually, I I submitted the code into them, and yeah, when when that code was accepted, and it was all deployment and backend stuff, and when when Habitica said, you know what, we we do want to incorporate, we want to accept your code into our project, so now you're an actual contributor, contributor. Yeah, that that. There is some valid. There is that sort of pure validation there to say, "Oh, okay, I am, I guess, good enough, or I, I have provided value to the project, and they see that and accept that." Right. 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 And there, I mean, doing the dance around this to not downplay any of the other bits and and things like that is so difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm equally proud when mm-hmm. I've got a 14-year-old collector up in Washington who has come to my booth several times now and gets a piece every time. And I am just as proud of that. But I can tell people down here about the Dan Chan, and they'll, if they're artists, they'll go, and, you know, you, you, you get to feel a little smug about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think, I yes. I, I think I know. I know. I think we have adequately explained this. So, <laughs> um, all right, that is everything. So, Frank, do you have anything you want to add or talk about before we well, get to the tell us where we can see your stuff and buy your stuff? Ah, uh, why don't we just go to there? And- okay. 
I have a business website. It is mm-hmm. offcenteroneword.biz, B-I-Z. I got in the, on the ground floor on the dot biz. <laughs> it has, uh, it's like a catalog. It's It's got all my different forms, all my different patterns. It's got a f- contact link. It's got a find us page that tells the next half dozen shows I'm doing. It is not does not permit direct ordering. My inventory is so wildly variable and I don't want to set stuff aside. I I gave up my Etsy store because I didn't want to be boxing up pots that I could be selling. Right. But if you see something you want, or if you have have an idea of something you want, you can email me through the contact page there and I'll either say, Oh yeah, I got that. Or I'll say, you know, it'll be four weeks because that's my next firing. Okay. I, I also have a blog on Dreamwith. It's called Slightly Off Center, Random Ruminations of a Working Potter. And it's got works in progress. It's got recipes. It's got show reports. It's got a fun tag called Things I'm Not Going to Make, <laughs> things that people have suggested over the years that I think I'm going to have to add a new one for this next one for triangular plates. Triangular? Yeah. Um, if you can do them, it's something. But I, I can see that as... as- well. Yeah, not if you could do them efficiently, which would probably mean making a mold and casting. Triangle wastes a lot of space. Those little points don't hold much. <laughs> I mean, I could see trochoidal, you know, three points mm. and then curving sides. That'd be a lovely shape for a plate. I would totally be into that. But the customer specified triangular, and I thought, nah, no. Yeah, no, and there are companies who make those in, in mass production for restaurant supply and and party supply and things like that. So it's it's not like it's uh, it's difficult to get unless you want something very very specific that only you make, and then you know it is up well, to you. It's a thirty yeah. ninth birthday present, and he wanted three sets of three from three different local potters and. Um, he'd already gotten two, and he'll find a third. There oh, are yeah. no shortage of potters in Oregon. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very true. <laughs> so. I mean, this is a state that has four different pottery-only shows run by four different pottery organizations. Oof. <laughs> is, there, is, is there just a surplus of clay in, in Oregon that none of us know about? Or... There is there is just a wonderful networking system for potters. It's I think Clay Folk in Southern Oregon and OPA Oregon Potters Association in Portland started for more or less contemporaneously forty years ago as um, places to run workshops and do group buys and trade recipes and hang out and and set they each do a show a year. Clay. Um, OPAs is in April. Clay folks is just before Thanksgiving. So it's like peak Christmas shopping time. Right. And then uh, local clay and Eugene spun off. God, this is our 20th anniversary. The, the show is in two weeks <laughs> here in Eugene. Mm-hmm. And then wildfire up in Bend is 12 years old now. So wow. they're all working on the same model of potters getting together, hanging out, cooperating, and then, putting on a show because you know it's a good use way to cooperate and make a little money on the side yeah yeah no that that's fair i mean we have the um artists uh studio tour every year oh yeah and there are i i didn't realize there are a lot of potters on the tour um and or and and people doing work in clay 
which I was very surprised by. And then I realized that there is actually a, a big tradition, at least in this part of the, the, uh, Atlantic coast, um, this part of the, the South of people of, you know, of basically pottery. And, um, I think this is where the, the ugly jugs or ugly bottles came from. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those, um, mm-hmm. there's a really good Smithsonian book called raised in clay, the Southern pottery tradition. And it talks about the thing is that most of the uh, clay used in America comes from Tennessee, Georgia, Kentucky. Ball clay in in Kentucky and and Tennessee, kaolin in Georgia and into Florida. Mm -hmm. The only other kind of clay, basically, I think stoneware clay or fire clay is mined more in California. But so there, there was this opportunity all this material close at hand, you got wood for firing, you got clay that you just dig. And, uh, before Tupperware pottery was the thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and of course here we have the red clay, which isn't much for making pots out of, but bricks it's, you know, it, it, it Hmm. is like, that is why the red bricks are, uh, red often is because, uh, I think it's Sanford bricks. Yeah. yeah, it's a high iron earthenware clay. We've yeah. got one deposit of that out here in Oregon. Most of Oregon is geologically too recent. The volcanoes covered right. all the clay. But there's a red clay deposit up north of us in Monroe that made bricks for many years. And there was stoneware down in Jacksonville, but it's long gone. It's been yeah. dug up and used up. Yeah, we've got a red clay. I can't, you know, red clay is like the bane of our existence. And then we've got the yellow clay, which is the much... Um, is you don't think of the red clay as clay so much as mud, but the yellow clay feels much more clay-like, and that one holds water just laying in its deposit in the ground. Um, <laughs> so you know you can always tell where you've got yellow clay in your yard because that's where water isn't draining. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have a little bit of bentonite, which is volcanic clay that swells Ooh. up like jello, and it's the same effect. If you've got some that spot stays wet forever. Yeah. Oh, wow. Swells up like jello. You that. use about 2% in glazes to make, keep them suspended in the bucket, but more ah. than that, not useful. Interesting. Man, there's so much science and and art in, in pottery that I don't know about other than somebody put a lot of work into that and it's amazing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we will accept that. All right. Um, that's that's all I've got, Frank. Um, thank you very much. It has been delightful, and now I can listen to future episodes without thinking. Now, how would I answer that question? Because <laughs> you now you know <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot, and uh, for the people at home, we'll be right back. So it was great talking to Frank. It was great talking to, basically it's been great talking to everybody. Make sure you check out Frank's stuff. I will leave it linked in the show notes. 
for this episode. This week, we will offer a badge code, too, because we always offer badge codes, don't we? Uh, as far as I know. Yes. Our badge code this week is Potter, P-O-T-T-E-R, because it just makes sense. Absolutely. Now, I don't know where what I'm going to use for the icon at this point. I will go to Noun Project and, and get an icon, as I always do. Use, like, a mug or something. I might find a cracked mug or a cracked pot if I can. So, I, um... Yeah, so if if you don't know about the badges we issue, we issue open badges. You can go to the website, and there's a little form. You can just type in the word Potter, and it will take you, or it will help you through the process of claiming one of the Productivity Alchemy badges. And that's a little image with some metadata to say how and when you got it, and who who gave it to you. And they're used by all sorts of people. Uh, Mozilla helped design the standard. Uh, Fedora Project uses them. Uh, there are some museums and educational institutions that use them. And I, I think they're fun. And uh, I think at least one person... Oh, it was, uh, it was last week's interview. It was uh, Damien, who I'm like, you know, you get a special badge code for being interviewed. And he's like, I know, I'm a completionist. That's why I did it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, all right then. All right then. Gotta I hope that I hope I hope I'm I hope I'm doing that the right way. Yeah, I'm doing that the right way. I'm pretty yeah. It Kevin wasn't is Chris. flipping papers to try to remember. I have yeah, no, I have all of my interviews now in order, ready to go in my planner. I just have to move the this week's when I'm done with it to the done pile. Everybody's happy. Excellent. They're in order and I can look at them. I went ahead this past week while I was uh, or before I started migrating the server. As I'm like, I'm waiting for them to process all this information. I went ahead and sketched out or basically set up drafts in WordPress for all of the interviews I have on file so far. Nice. We are at this point, thanks to the all the volunteers and the last couple, like the last month of work put in, we now have interviews through pretty much the end of January. And I, yeah, no, I think that's amazing too. It wouldn't be possible without all of you listening. And I'm very grateful. So that's it for this week. Yes. Uh, I will probably not be here next week because I am having dental surgery on that Wednesday. Yes. And, uh, I am taking the good drugs. Yes. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It, it, we may, I may juggle the recording around. We might do it. Uh, Tuesday instead, because I also am getting a tattoo on Wednesday. Uh, maybe we should schedule that for Tuesday. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you can support mm -hmm. us at mm -hmm. Patreon, Ursula V, U-R-S-U-L-A-V, which pays for things like our new hosting provider. Yes. And uh, you can buy Kevin a coffee mm -hmm. at... Kofi.com slash K-S-O-N-N-E-Y. That's K-O-F-I. Mm -hmm. And... That's about it, since apparently Drip has decided it's not actually going to exist anymore. Oh, there is something fun to talk about, though. What, Drip? No. November 10th, at WindyCon, the first ever Productivity Alchemy Live. Is that the 10th? That's the 10th. Holy crap. Yeah. No, I, I, I leave for WindyCon in, like, a little over a week. And oh, wow. we are a little over a week away from the first ever. Ursula will not be with me. I just want to make that clear. No, no. Ursula is staying home mm -hmm. and taking care of the chickens. Yep. But uh, we have a panel space. We have an hour. I'll have some recording gear. And we're. I'm just going to sit down and we'll see what happens. I need to see who else asked to be on the panel with me. But if you're going to be... But if no one asks, someone ask. 
I might just grab someone out of the hallway and say, <laughs> hey, let's do this thing. No, really, uh, if you're going to be at WindyCon or if you're in the Chicago area and just want to get a day badge or something for this, uh, I will be there. I will have at least, I don't know what stickers I'll have because I'm starting to run a little low and I haven't found a new sticker provider yet. But you will be able to get the business card with the coveted code for the I Met Kevin badge. Yes, and I, I do have lots of I Met Kevin stickers left. People are really <laughs> happy with the with the little fail with a heart badge sticker but the i met kevin is not as well yeah i i i love you dear but you just can't compare to failure i know i know <laughs> so so i'll have at least some of the stickers i'll have my business cards with the i met kevin code we're going to do it live no no net uh possibly no editing but i'm going to take the recording and i'm going to shove it into an as episode long as it's not no guests no guests it, I may walk in and it just turns into a giant q and A. I I don't know. We will find out what's happening when, when I get there. All righty. All right. Well, we will talk to you next week, Internet. And remember, folks, stay productive. Woo!